So we were supposed to begin um, the book of Judges today, if you've been paying attention to that announcement. Um, however, Dan got sick last minute on Friday, and so I'm kind of stepping in last minute. And I decided rather than us push into Judges, Dan was work, already working on his introduction to Judges, so we'll let Dan do that next week, hopefully, as long as he gets better. And we'll spend one week kind of uh, continuing our hiatus before getting into the expositional series again. So we'll continue today on uh, a sermon uh, with our Purpose and Pursuits series um, during this, this week that we have here then. And so our Purpose and Pursuit series, this is the language that we use in our membership class to kind of explain our purpose, that is like our mission, why we as a church exist, and then our pursuits being how we go about pursuing that mission as a church. So our purpose is to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. That's our mission. And our pursuits are the different things that the Bible lays out for us in terms of how we pursue a mission as a church and what ought to characterize a healthy church by whom that mission is being fulfilled and in whom that mission is being fulfilled. A couple weeks ago, we looked at elders as one of those pursuits, the role of biblical elders in the Bible. We spent two weeks on that. And today, since I have another week, um, I decided let's look at the topic of church membership. Church membership. Um, and I've titled my, mes my message today, Church Membership, Publicly Belonging to Christ's People. Publicly Belonging to Christ's People. And so today what I want to do is I want to make a biblical case for why we practice church membership and its importance for our health as a people, uh, individually and as a church collectively. And there's two moves I want to make. So you could, just to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going, the argument I'm going to make has two steps to it. Okay? The first step is that I want to demonstrate, first of all, that the gospel has a community shape to it. That the gospel saves us, not as sole individuals or islands, um, but as a people. Could someone maybe shut the doors back there, just in case there's more traffic? Just a little echoing here, that might help. So the gospel saves us as a people. It saves us into a community. There's a corporate dimension to the gospel. That's the first step I want to I show you that, Okay. Second of all, then, then I want to move from that to show you that the practice of church membership serves as a way we apply this reality in our context and how we put that into practice, okay? And uh, these purpose and pursuit sermons uh, that we kind of do occasionally in between series and things like that, they serve to educate us as a church on the foundations of our church life and why we do what we do. They strive to kind of give us some unity in our practice and our convictions around these things as we carry out our mission and these various pursuits. So in terms of application, as I like to say, these, the applications of these sermons are maybe a little bit different. It's maybe less, you go ahead and do this on your own, but it's more of, this is why we as a church are doing this together. For some of us, it may call for a new perspective. It may mean that we have to embrace a new set of convictions or change in how we act towards the practice of church membership. But for those of us 
um, who are already on board with these ideas. The application is less a call to do something new, but an explanation and a further commitment to what we're already doing as a church in fostering unified conviction around these things. All right, so with that said, the first uh, piece of the argument this morning is this is the claim I am making is first that the gospel saves us into local assemblies of believers. We call these churches. Okay, so the first step in today's argument is that the gospel saves us into local assemblies of believers. Okay, we see this pattern in scripture. So if you want to turn to Acts, we're going to be going all over the place today. So if you want to listen, just listen as I read, that's fine. But if you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Okay, Acts is in the New Testament after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts chapter 2. This, is, uh, this chapter recounts Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter is preaching the Gospel as an explanation of what has just happened. And when people hear him, they respond saying, what should we do in response to this Gospel? And he tells them to trust in Christ. And when people do, in verse 41, those who received his word, the Gospel, they're baptized and they're added that day about 3,000 souls. So you notice the order. They receive the word, they believe, they repent and believe. They're baptized, marking them off as those repentant believers, marking them off as those united to Christ. And then they're added. Well, added to what? Added to the group of believers, the church. 3,000 souls. So we notice, even in this, just kind of the birth of the church in, at Pentecost, the gospel does not merely save individual people on their own, but it saves them collectively, as a group, as a community. If you were to go on to verse 42, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and we see the community life now, that they're not just saved by themselves, but they're brought together by the gospel. Now, the question arises, though, that's just one verse, is this an anomaly? Maybe this is just what happened in Jerusalem. But this is not sort of characteristic of the gospel at large. Okay? Maybe this is just a, a Jerusalem thing. Okay? Well, if what I'm arguing, though, is true, that the gospel saves us, not as individuals, but into communities of the saved, what we call churches, then as the gospel is spread to other areas in the book of Acts, and more and more people become believers we would expect to see other churches emerging in those areas as well. That where the gospel goes and where the gospel saves, we're going to see churches pop up, if what I'm saying is true. And of course, that's exactly what we do see. By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we see that a church forms of the believers in Antioch. Not just believers in Antioch, but a church in Antioch. And then as we read the rest of the book, we see, for example, in Paul's first missionary journey, uh, as it comes to conclusion in Acts 14 there, it, they it talks about in verse 26 that they appointed elders in every church. So as the gospel spreads, even in that first missionary journey, it not, just, it not only saves people, but it saves them into local churches where there's actually elders and there's organization. There's an institution being formed, the church. And, of course, we see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament assumes this reality, right? Right after Acts, what's, what are some of the books that we get? We get Romans, which is the letter written to the church in Rome. Or Corinthians, the, the letters to the church in Corinth. Ephesians, Galatians, etc. The letters, by and large, with some exceptions, you have Timothy and Titus, who are, of course, 
overseers in churches. Okay, so even those assume churches, but the letters are written to churches. You don't get, there's not sort of this isolated individual phenomenon going on, but the gospel is producing churches. Okay, so the gospel produces a community and it makes us a part of a redeemed people. And I'm arguing this is actually inherent to the gospel. This is, this is part of what the gospel does. This is part of what salvation uh, looks like, is a salvation of a people. 1 Peter 2, if you look at 1 Peter with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, it says, but you are a chosen race. So this is using language from Israel and applying it to the church, seeing the church as the fulfillment of what Israel was intended to be all along. It says, church, you're a chosen race. That's a people. You're a royal priesthood. That's a collective. A holy nation. That's corporate language. A people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice this. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, of course, we know elsewhere in the New Testament, it can say, once you are dead in your sins and now you're alive, once you are condemned, now you're justified. That's all true, and that can be true of us individually and personally. But here, we get corporate language for our salvation. Once you were not a people, you're peopleless. Now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, that part we're familiar with, and now we've received mercy. But don't forget the people dimension to it as well that comes before. And if you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. I take that to be obeying the gospel, that is, believing the gospel. We submit to the gospel by trusting in Christ. So our obedience to the truth of the gospel. Notice, we're... That has purified our souls. Okay, we've been forgiven. We've been cleansed by trusting in the gospel. For what? Towards what end? For what purpose? For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, one of the things that the gospel does is it not only makes me right with God, but it also makes me right with my fellow Christians. We're saved not only, there's not only a vertical dimension to the gospel, where I'm reconciled with God, but now I've also been saved to have what? A purified heart to love other believers. It assumes that there's a community aspect to the gospel. Like when someone gets, uh, one, of the, one of the images, even Dan was talking about this last week with sonship, one of the key images of scripture for salvation is that of adoption, right? We've been included in God's family. Now, one of the aspects of adoption is if you're adopted, you not only receive new parents, you not only are, are then included, like you're, you are legally considered their child and they are your parents, but what happens if those parents also have other children, those are now legally become your, your siblings as well. And as believers, we are not only adopted by God and simply have him as our father, but we've been adopted to, into a family and we inherently and unavoidably now have siblings in the faith. You can't, in other words, be united to Jesus and not also be united with everyone else who's united to him. The, if the family comes with, it's a package deal. Sometimes people will say, though, yes, I agree that the gospel saves us into a people, but that people is the universal church. I don't necessarily need to be a part of a local church. Okay, maybe you've heard that before. Some people say, yes, of course, there's this idea that we're saved into the church, but it's just kind of this amorphous idea of everyone who's a believer and it doesn't necessarily need to take expression in particular local churches. The problem with that 
is that's sort of like if someone um, comes up to you, say there was someone who came up to you and they said, hey, you're, you're, you're getting to know them and you say, what do you do for work? And they say, well, I'm, I'm in the NFL. I know this is kind of a sensitive topic uh, this morning. But they say, I'm in the NFL. And you say, wow, that's super, that's super interesting. What, what would be one of the first questions you might ask them? You might say, well, what team are you on? You're interested to know what team they're on. And what if they said, well, I'm not any, on any one particular team. I'm in the universal NFL. I'm just sort of you know, in the collection of everybody who's in the NFL. It's like, OK, sure. So like, but you're not in the NFL unless you're on a team's roster. You do realize that, right? You're not technically in the NFL. That's how the universal church and the local church distinction is meant to function. They're not meant to be exclusive, like you're a part of the universal church, but not actually a part of any specific local body that makes up the universal church. You see, when, when, when Protestants, when theologians develop those categories in those languages and trying to reflect what scripture is doing, there's no sense of sort of belonging to some vague idea of a church without it actually having some tangible meaning in a local body. You see, the local bodies, the local churches, are the, are the particular manifestation of the broader church. So to say that you're a part of the church, but you're not actually a part of any particular local form of that church is kind of nonsense. It's kind of gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense. The local churches are particular manifestations of that universal church. And this is assumed in the New Testament's vision of community life. So even the passage that Matt read where it talks about how we're members of the body. You can't fulfill, like there's, there's loads of passages like this in scripture that talk about, think about all the commands we get in the New Testament uh, where, where it, it assumes life in a church. It talks about the spiritual gifts we've been given not for ourselves, it says, but for the sake of other people, to, to build up others, the, the body of Christ, to love your brothers and sisters, to bear one another's burdens, to be accountable to other people, to forgive other people, your, your fellow believers, to have leaders like elders that you submit to and that leaders are overseeing you. All that stuff assumes a community life. You, you literally can't obey those commands without being a part of a church. Belonging to a local church is assumed in the Bible. So how else would you fulfill these sort of relational community dimensions to the Christian life? Okay, so that's step number one. I've simply tried to prove to you, and, and I think most people would agree with this so far, that the, uh, I mean, there are some who disagree, but most people here probably um, would, would agree with me that the, the, the gospel saves us into community, and it's important to be a part of these communities we call churches, okay? But um, although I think a good amount of people would agree with me up until this point, there are some who would object that even though they say believers should be a part of local church, um, belong to churches, they would object that we need to have a sort of formal practice called membership. So why do we need to have sort of an, a formalized version of this, an official version and procedures to make it uh, public and recognized and official? And so at this point, I want to persuade you of my next point that builds off of that first point. I want to persuade you that practicing church membership is actually really important, helpful, and needed for the health of our church. And so here my argument is that formal church membership is how we concretely practice this belonging to a local church. Formal 
church membership is how we concretely put into practice and apply this reality of belonging to a local church. Now, let me be clear. What do I mean when I say church membership? What I mean very simply is is belonging to or being a part of a local church. So when I say someone is a church member, what I mean is that they are a part of the church. They belong to the church. Okay? This is not, in other words, okay, I have, a, I have a membership at Planet Fitness, and I believe if I wanted to, I could upgrade. Sometimes they try to tell me, you, gotta, you should upgrade, you know? I think it's called a black card, does anyone know? Where when I have a black, if I had a black card, I got the basic. I got like the, the surf version of like Planet Fitness. I'm the low, I'm the low person in Planet Fitness. Okay, but if you were, if you're like the high class Planet Fitness, you know, you get to go in there and you can use like their massage chairs and their tanning beds and you can go to any Planet Fitness in town. Like I, I can only go to one, right? But if you get the black card, you can go to any Planet Fitness in all of Milwaukee or wherever and you can bring guests and all this stuff, right? So some people think of church membership kind of like having the black card, like you're, like, if you're not a member, you're still, they still kind of think of themselves as a part of the church, or, or you maybe view them as a part of the church. They just haven't taken the step to kind of get the extra perks, okay? That is not how I, that is not what I mean by membership. So just so we're on the same page here, when I'm talking about church membership, I'm actually saying, like, you are officially a part of the church. And if you're not a member, you're technically not a part of the church. So another way, you might think of it this way, like if we're on an airplane, some people think of membership as kind of like first class seating. And so everyone else, you know, they're in economy, they're still on the plane. So they're like, I'm good, I don't need to be in the first class. Like I'm good with economy. And so they kind of think of church membership that way. Like the church is the whole plane and the people who are members, they've just kind of taken an extra step and maybe they have some extra perks. That's not, just to be clear, that is not how I'm thinking about church membership. Church membership is, like, the membership of the church is the church. To not be a member of the church is to not yet be a part of the church, technically speaking. Okay? So I want to advocate to you that sort of vision um, of this idea of the importance of actually treating, of actually having a practice of membership where there's a clear sense of, of someone becoming a part of the church, and having a vision of that, of that distinction and why that's important. Now, sometimes people will say, well, you know, church membership is not in the Bible, okay? Well, what do we think about that, okay? Well, I would say, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. Um, it, 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 in the one sense, it, it's not in the Bible, in the sense that all the procedures, like, that we would use to have you know, a membership class, and you get interviewed by the elders, and we have an application you fill out on our website. Of course, that stuff is not in the Bible. There's a lot of things that we do as a church that are not, strictly speaking, said to be in the Bible. Like, I'm using a podium right now. There's nothing in the Bible that says we have to use podiums and, or, or using guitars or whatever, right? These are, we, we put into practice things that go beyond the pages of Scripture all the time, right? So the question is, is it faithful to Scripture, and is it a faithful application of scripture, Because what I would argue is in the Bible is the category of belonging to a church, and that, that I've already established. There is a sense of belonging to the church. What I'm arguing is that our formal practices of membership help us do that well. They help us put that principle into practice well. So on the one hand, we have a principle that there, there's a reality in scripture of this sense of belonging to the church, but also we see in scripture that this people has a clear, identifiable boundaries of who is and who isn't the church. So in Acts 2, for example, the 
passage we read before, Acts 2.41, it says that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, and that's up from 120 people in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, there's 120 people, and then after Pentecost, it's, it's increased to 3,000. In other words, not only was there a sense of the gospel producing a community, but they knew who that community was. It wasn't vague to them, 3,000 souls. They, they knew who the people were. There was, you could clearly say this person is not a part of the church, and this person is, such that you can say we're roughly 3,000 people. Okay? Acts 2.47 continues this idea. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. There's a recognition of who that people is. They're being added. Acts 4.4, 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So not only does the gospel produce a people, but it's a recognizable people. You can actually identify. There's some way of knowing who that people is. All right? So here's my contention. Every church practices church membership. Every church does. Okay? So if you went to another church and they didn't have a formal practice of church membership, they still practice it. There's some people, like you go to any church and there's some, the way they talk, they, oh, this person is a part of our church. People consider them a part of the church. So, so when sometimes when people push back against the practice of church membership, it's like, well, everyone's doing it. You're, you're doing it even if you don't like the idea of it. If you went somewhere else and they didn't practice it, they'd still be doing it. They still have a sense of, like, these people are a part of their church, and maybe the line's fuzzier, like, those people are kind of regular attenders, and those people aren't a part of our church, but every church operates with a sense of this is who we are. What I'm just saying is that it's better to do that well than do it sloppy. It's better to make those boundaries clear and discernible. So most churches operate with a sense of belonging to the church. The question isn't if a church practices church membership, but if it's doing it well or if it's doing it sloppy. Whether the boundaries of who belongs to the church are clear or whether they're fuzzy. Whether someone's belonging to the church is public and it's recognized, so how I titled this message, publicly belonging to Christ's people, or whether it's simply kind of assumed and a little bit uncertain. And I'm saying that fuzziness, that sloppiness, that uncertainty is not good for the health of the church for a variety of reasons. A formal practice of church membership allows us to exercise church membership in a way that is public, recognizable, agreed upon by all parties involved with clarity and clear accountability. Let me give you some reasons now why that is. Okay, first of all, we believe that the church is to be made up of believers and only believers. This is called regenerate church membership. Everyone who is a part of the church should be an actual believer. They should be regenerate, born again, right? Okay, that means, so what, so what then happens though if we don't practice any sort of official church membership? Maybe we kind of just assume it and it's more informal. We start to equate those who belong to the church with simply those who regularly participate in our gatherings in our life together right? What's the problem with this? Well, what if one of those people happens to be a non-believer? In other words, we can't just assume that anyone who walks through our doors or starts attending our gatherings for some time is necessarily a part of our church. We want to have some way of actually discerning this, which is what we do in membership, to discern whether they actually are, in fact, believers. And we don't want to project to them that we're considering them a part of our church if they're not a believer. We don't want to give them that sense of false assurance. So in other words, belief in a believer's church, that is, that the church should be 
um, constituted of believers only, it demands that we have some way of actually practicing that, of practicing those boundaries between believers and non-believers who the church has officially recognized as a believer and therefore belonging to the church. And so for the sake of the church and the individual, this needs to be public and recognized by all and not assumed or taken for granted. We want to make this official. And this is actually one of the benefits of church membership too, is that when you come into the church and you go through the process that we've put in place, you're interviewed by the elders, you fill out an application. And what we're saying when someone comes into the church is anytime someone joins the church is we're saying as a church, we believe you're a believer. And that's an awesome thing. That's another means of God's grace in our life to be able to affirm your faith, to give you a, a means of assurance that when you are baptized into the church, when you are then are taking the Lord's Supper with the church, when the church receives you and says we see you as a member, these are all ways, things that God has put in place to grant the believer assurance that it's not just you saying, I think I'm a believer, but there's a whole body of believers who have also gotten behind you and say, yeah, we also think you're a believer. The second thing is that the church is a voluntary society. We don't force people to be a part of our church. So we can't just go go on assuming that someone has decided to make themselves a part of our church or submit to our accountability as a church. So although I would argue that being a part of a church is not something that should be optional for the believer, every believer should be a part of the church, that's not an optional thing, it is nonetheless voluntary. It's a choice you make. You have to choose what church you're going to join, and you have to, you have to actually be willing to be a part of the church. We're not going to force that upon you. And so that means that we can't make this decision for you and just, you just start showing up and we just assume you're a part of the church without actually asking you if that's what you've decided. And so they need to consent to that. And so it's helpful for the church and for the entire congregation to be aware of who has actually joined themselves to the church and who hasn't so that we can properly practice our membership obligations and accountability to one another. And so a formal public congregation recognized practice of church membership allows us to practice this this idea of consenting to actually being a part of the church. Okay, third is that it allows us to properly govern ourselves. So just practically speaking, you think about when the church has a vote. So we're voting on Sam becoming an elder that ends today, which blurb, if you haven't done so yet, see me after the service so we can get your vote. I'm aiming for high, high participation, okay? But how do we do that? Does anyone, if we don't have official membership and we're having a membership vote, who gets to vote? Is it the person who shows up for the first time and they say they're a believer and we haven't actually talked to them? We don't really know where, they, where they're coming from. Is it the person who maybe has been gone for four months and comes back? Like, it, it just creates some messy boundaries. And so even just for our ability to govern ourselves properly, who makes up the church to make these sort of decisions together? Um, it can't just be those who show up because it needs to be believers. We need to be able to discern that. We need recognizable boundaries. Fourthly, is church discipline. So the New Testament directs churches to practice church discipline, which can lead up to removing someone from church membership if they persist in unrepentance. So Matthew 18 talks about this. If the person does not heed correction, treat them as a, as a sinner, as a Gentile, as a tax collector. Treat them as if they're an unbeliever. Or 1 Corinthians 5 says, purge the evil from among you. In that case, there is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother and he was unrepentant. So they remove him from the church. Okay. Now, when we talk about excluding someone from membership, we're not talking about stopping them from attending the church's gatherings. 
When you discipline someone out of the church, you're treating them as a non-believer. And generally speaking, like with any non-believer, we'd be thrilled if they attended our gatherings. We want them to keep hearing the gospel. We want them to keep hearing the Bible preached and taught. And we want them to repent. And so that means we can't treat membership then as just sort of attendance. Church discipline is being removed from the recognized group of those who actually make up the church. That is its membership. But how can someone be removed from membership if they never belonged in the first place? Hence, a formal practice of belonging to the church is needed, church membership. Fifthly, and I have seven of these, so you can count with me. Fifthly, the church's testimony. The church's testimony. By identifying those who are the church, by identifying those whom the church consists of, it also clarifies who publicly represents our church. Okay? So consider the scenario where someone starts attending our church services, and maybe they even profess to be a believer. But during their weeks, they're involved in all sorts of deviant behaviors, and they have a reputation in the community for such uh, for sin, a sinful lifestyle. Now, if the boundaries of our church weren't clear, someone could well accuse our church and say, hey, you guys obviously don't take sin very seriously. Why aren't you guys doing anything about this guy? He's a part of your church. He's involved in all this sort of sin. You, you guys seem to tolerate that sort of thing in your church. I mean, many, many churches get accused of tolerating sin. We don't want to be that type of church. We want to follow the scriptures and not put up with unrepentant sin. But when membership is practiced, what can we say? We can say, well, this person's not a part of our church. We're glad that they show up to our services. We're glad that they hear the gospel preached, but we in no way consider them a, mem- a member of our church, and in no way would we receive them into the member of our membership of our church with their unrepentance the way it is. We don't condone that, and we call that person to repentance. So it allows us to guard the testimony of our church, which is also why thinking about membership allows us to, to publicly say who represents our church. That's why certain volunteer activities in our church are restricted to actual members. Like we're not going to have someone teach our children who's not an actual member, who hasn't actually signed on to saying they agree with us and are, and are going to be held accountable to us and agree to our statement of faith. We're not just going to let anyone teach our kids, for example, or serving on the music team. Someone who we want people who actually publicly are a part of our church representing us in that sort of public way. Number six is so that elders know who they're responsible for. So Acts 20 verse 28 says, Paul talking to elders, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Or 1 Peter 5, shepherd elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so elders are told to shepherd the flock. They're told to watch over the flock. We we as elders are going to give an account for how we've watched over the flock. We're responsible for you guys to, 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 to elder you and care for you and oversee you. But if I don't know who the you is, I'm in deep trouble. Am I responsible for the person who shows up here for the first time and I never see them again? Am I responsible to, the, to any believer in this neighborhood? Or is there a clear boundary marker for the people that say, yeah, this is the flock here and I am responsible for them? Okay? Who are the sheep that I'm particularly responsible for? Membership allows us to practice that clearly rather than just kind of vaguely or sloppily. 
Okay? And even for you guys, who, as you guys become members, we covenant together to take care of each other, this allows you to know clearly who you have a, re- a unique responsibility to watch over, love, serve, and care for. Okay? And then seventh, lastly, not only is it so I know who I'm responsible for, as well as any other elder, but it's so that you guys know who you're responsible to. So Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. But what leaders are you actually required to submit to and to, and to follow? Is it anyone in the city of Milwaukee who claims to be a pastor? Is it your neighbor who claims to be a pastor? Or is it your pastor? And how do we go about publicly and officially recognizing who is your pastor? Church membership allows us to do that. And so every church practices church membership. Every church has a sense of belonging to a church. You talk to people who go to church, you talk to pastors, everyone's going to talk along those lines. What I'm arguing is that these sort of reasons make a case for doing that process well versus just kind of assuming it. Okay? So this is how we put it in our philosophy of ministry. We have a philosophy of ministry as a church, which is like our really detailed version of our purpose and pursuits. I'd encourage you to read it sometime. Um, it's available on our website. And this is, this is sort of the, uh, the convictions that go into why we operate as a church that all of our elders have to sign on to. We, this is what we say about membership in our philosophy of ministry. We say that the Bible assumes and expects that all believers join and submit themselves to a local church with whom they will regularly gather and to whom they faithfully serve and are accountable, such as with church discipline. And so we are, con- we are thus committed to seeing this vision of the normal, healthy Christian life realized in our community by one, fostering a culture, and two, observing a practice of church membership that expects this of all believers in our midst. Okay, so notice what we're saying. We're saying we believe that the New Testament says believers should be part of a local church. That was the first point in my sermon. And the second thing is we're saying we want, to make, we want them to encourage that to be what people do here. We don't want to see, in other words, we don't want to see people just attend here indefinitely without joining who claim to be believers. If you're a believer here today, we want to see you move towards publicly um, making yourself a part of our church, making that official. And so we want to foster a culture where that church membership is practiced and is expected of all believers in our midst. We think that's good for us and we think that's good for you. And we believe it is vital for the health and well-being of our church that our church be able to identify its boundaries and its constituencies, that is, who makes up the church. First, this identifies those for whom the church, and particularly its leaders, have formal responsibility to watch over. Second, it maintains clarity and avoids a dangerous ambiguity regarding whom the church has publicly recognized as believers. And third, it guards the testimony of the church by specifying who actually constitutes the church. Church membership is the necessary contemporary application of this biblical principle of being able to identify who is part of the church. And so now, as we move to the the Lord's Supper, um, I want to remind us of kind of how we began the sermon, which is that the gospel creates a community. The gospel we celebrate, um, this is the gospel that stands behind everything we've been talking about this morning. This idea of church membership, this idea of belonging to a people, it's only because of the gospel. As 1 Peter 
2, which we read, said, once we had not received mercy, and now we've received mercy. And the other part of that is that once we were not a people, and now we've been made a people. Notice how the, the book of Revelation describes what Christ has done in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Worshiping Christ, it says, Worthy are you, the Lamb who is slain, to take the scroll, the purposes that God has for history, to open its seals, to make it come about. Why? Because you were slain. And what, does this, what did the slain do? What was, what was accomplished? Well, by your blood you ransomed, not individuals, of course individuals, yes, but a people, a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation that the gospel buys the church. As Ephesians 5 says that he bought the church, he laid down his life for the church. He lays down his life for the sheep, John 10. The gospel produces what is happening right here. As the church gathers this morning, it gathers because the gospel has bought us and brought us together. So our very presence this morning is, it, is, is, is an indication of what the gospel has done. It is a celebration of the gospel. And the Lord's Supper, which is uh, not just a promised picture from God to you individually, it's also a community meal. A meal. The, the language that it gets used oftentimes in the Christian tradition is that we come to the table. Why? Because not only are we fellowshipping with Christ, our host, who tells us to come feed on his body and blood, these emblems of his death for us. But it's a table that we come together and it's a meal that we share together. That's why we try to, that's why we, the way we do it, we take the elements back to our seat and we take it together to say, listen, the same body and blood of Christ that bought me also bought you. And I know sometimes in certain traditions when we practice the Lord's Supper, we kind of get really privatized about it and we kind of look down and we confess our sins to God and try to get right with God before taking the Lord's Supper. And it's very individual. We're staring down at our knees. Okay? I would encourage you, maybe not always, but maybe today, one of the things you can do in the Lord's Supper is look around while you're taking the Lord's Supper. That's an appropriate thing to do because the Lord's Supper communicates that we're in this together. That the, the gospel has not just bought you, but it's bought your brother and sister, and you're united with them. When you've become adopted by God, you inherited a family, and you inherited siblings. We are locked we are locking arms together. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, because there is one bread, we might add one cup, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. We are all eating the same bread. We're all eating the same, we're drinking the same juice. It, the, the, not only does the Lord's Supper declare that we are bought people and saved people, but it declares that we are a united people together.